0: You can open your Bibles to Genesis 32. I preached the book of Genesis to our students a few years ago. And out of all 50 chapters of the book of Genesis, I don't know that I encountered anything that is more odd than what we see in this text. That's a significant statement in the book of Genesis. Especially when you consider just how familiar the story that we're going to encounter this morning is. If you grew up in the church, I presume that you're familiar with the story of Jacob wrestling with God. It's a story that's so familiar that it's easy to lose sight of how shocking that statement is. Jacob wrestled with God. And he lived to tell about it. That statement makes little sense. And in fact, this story in and of itself makes little sense when it's isolated from its context. And for that reason, we're going to be walking through a large amount of text this morning. You see on the screen behind me that we're going to be covering two chapters in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 32 and 33, because it's only when we see this whole story That we can make sense of the famous scene in which Jacob wrestles with God. Now, even within this larger text of Genesis 32 and 33, we are, that we're taking this morning, we're dropping into the middle of a larger story. So let's quickly summarize where we stand in the book of Genesis. The main character in this story is Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Jacob has a brother whose name is Esau, to say that Jacob has damaged his relationship with his brother is an understatement. When they were much younger, Jacob convinced Esau to sell him his birthright for a bowl of stew. Sometime later, Jacob stole his brother's blessing by deception. So Jacob has taken Esau's birthright and his blessing, both of which had indescribable value. Because of these acts of Jacob, because of his deceit, his deception, Esau is filled with a murderous hatred towards Jacob. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, we read these words, Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So because Jacob has stolen his birthright and his blessing, Esau's determination is that when the opportunity presents itself, he will take Jacob's life. Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother, hears of Esau's plan to kill Jacob. And so she sends Jacob away. She tells him to run for his life until Esau's fury subsides. She sends him to her brother, whose name is Laban. He lives in Haran, which is hundreds of miles away. So Jacob, at the instruction of his mother, packs up and takes off for Haran to escape the wrath of his brother Esau. Jacob begins his journey. And on the way there, God makes Jacob a promise. This is the famous scene in which Jacob has a dream of a ladder going to heaven and angels ascending and descending the ladder. In this dream, God makes Jacob a promise. He says this, I am going to give this land to you, and your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and the world will be blessed through your descendants. Those words are a reiteration of the covenant that God had made with Abraham that was passed down through Jacob and now, or was passed down through Isaac rather, and now in this scene is communicated to Jacob. God says, the promise that I made to your father and your grandfather, that promise flows through you. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through you. And you will receive this land, the land of Canaan, as an inheritance. Now, because God made Jacob that promise, he communicates one other promise to Jacob in that dream. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, as Jacob is journeying to Haran. He says, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So again, as Jacob is journeying to Haran, God says to Jacob, I'm with you. I will keep you. And as you are leaving Canaan, you must know, Jacob, that I am the one that is going to bring you back. I will fulfill my promise to you. You will be safe and you will return. Jacob arrives in Haran. He meets a young woman named Rachel who he falls in love with. He works seven years for Rachel's father, Laban, to earn the right to marry his daughter. After those seven years, Laban tricks him and gives him the wrong daughter, Leah. So Jacob works seven more years to earn the right to marry Rachel. After that, he works seven more years to gain livestock from Laban. So what we just covered in the last few sentences is 21, approximately 21 years of Jacob's life. After these 21 years, Jacob determines that it is time to return home to Canaan. In these 20 years, he has gained a family and many possessions. God has blessed Jacob immensely over the course of this time that we have just covered. But in the midst of all of this blessing, in the midst of all that Jacob has received, he has not forgotten that back home, his brother Esau is waiting for him. And the last words that he had heard his brother speak were words of murderous hatred. So Jacob is returning to Canaan, but he's terrified of what will happen when he faces his brother. He's hoping that his brother has forgotten and forgiven what Jacob did, but he can do nothing more than hope. He's not seen his brother in 20 years. So Jacob at the end of his long journey home, Jacob is at the end of his long journey home. That's where our text begins this morning. He's approaching the land where Esau lives, who he has not seen for 20 years. That brings us to our text which starts in Genesis chapter 32, verse three. As we work through this text this morning, we're gonna see several different scenes that just kind of help us to progress through this story. This is a long story, and so I'm gonna give you four scenes in the story of Jacob's return to Esau. Four scenes in the story, and again, these are simply just gonna gonna mark the story as we progress through it to help us wrap our minds around it rightly. After we look at these four scenes, we'll have two takeaways that I think this story uh, would have us to respond with. Four scenes in the story of Jacob's return to Esau. The first scene is Jacob's fear and preparation for Esau. Jacob's fear and preparation for Esau. We pick up in Genesis chapter 32, verse three. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob is approaching the land where Esau lives, and he sends messengers to tell Esau that Jacob is coming and that he is bringing gifts. Now, this all feels very cordial, but it's really not, not in the mind of Jacob. Jacob recognizes that he needs Esau's favor, and these gifts are specifically intended to earn Esau's favor. He recognizes, I have wronged you, and I need your favor. One of the things that Jacob took from Esau was the birthright, which included many, many possessions from their father Isaac. Jacob is offering back to Esau what he took. He's trying to make things right. So these messengers go and they tell Esau, Jacob is returning, he's coming back and he's bringing many gifts to give to you. Let's keep reading, verse six. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and furthermore, he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. So upon hearing that Jacob is coming, Esau decides to get 400 men and to come towards Jacob, which if you put yourself in Jacob's shoes, sounds absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And that's exactly how Jacob interpreted this message. Look at the beginning of verse seven. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Upon hearing this news, Jacob is terrified. He thinks that he is about to be attacked by an army led by Esau. He thinks that his brother is finally, after 21 years, taking his opportunity to kill him. He thinks that all this time has led to this climactic moment of revenge. Thus far in this story, it's important that we recognize Jacob's fear of his brother Esau. He's not coming into this with confidence. He's distressed. He's terrified. And he fears for his life. In his fear, he begins to make preparations for facing Esau. He does three things specifically to prepare for Esau. He has three approaches to try to survive this encounter. There's a pragmatic approach, there's a divine approach, and there's a manipulative, a manipulative approach. We're going to see all three of those in the next few verses. Pick up at verse seven. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. This is Jacob's first approach. It's a pragmatic approach. In these verses, we read that Jacob divides everything he owns into two groups. That way, Esau can only attack half of what Jacob has. It's a pragmatic approach. He's simply cutting his losses. He's convinced that he's going to lose something. He's trying to limit just how much that is. Trying to find a way that he can survive without losing everything. This is his first preparation for coming face to face with Esau. Next, he employs a divine preparation for Esau. He begins to pray to God. Pick up in verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. With these words, Jacob requests divine action. Note that in this prayer, Jacob reminds God of the promise that he would return him to his country and that he would protect him. Jacob reminds God of his promise. He admits that he is unworthy of God's mercy and yet he requests deliverance from his, brothers, from his brother Esau. Jacob specifically says in verse 11, I fear him. Scared of him. I'm afraid that my life is in his hands. I'm afraid that my blessings with which you have blessed me are now in his hands. I'm afraid that I am at the mercy of Esau. That's where Jacob's mind at, is in this moment. So he employs a, a pragmatic technique of cutting his losses. He invokes a divine resource in asking for protection. And finally, in preparation for facing Esau, his third strategy is to manipulate his brother by sending gifts, to manipulate his brother by sending gifts. Look at verses 13 through 21. So Jacob spent the night there and he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hands of his servants. Every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also a second and a third, and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. In these verses, Jacob sends these waves ahead of them. They're waves of large gifts. These are incredibly large gifts that he's giving to Esau. And he gives them in these, they're called droves. Like one group of animals at a time. And with every group of animals, there's a servant with them passing on a message to Esau. With each wave, the servants are to say, Jacob is right behind us. Jacob is hoping that the continual Onslaught of gifts will eventually wear down his brother's anger and result in Jacob's acceptance. Now, Jacob is giving up a massive amount of his resources here. This is a sizable gift that is intended to appease his brother's wrath. Again, remember that part of what Jacob took from Esau was his inheritance, which included many possessions like the ones that he is giving to him now. Jacob is trying to even the score. He's trying to appease his brother's wrath by sending these gifts. Now, what we need to observe to this point in this story is that in Jacob's fear, in Jacob's fear, he has utilized every known resource to survive his meeting with his brother. That's what we've communicated thus far in chapter 32. Jacob has utilized every known resource to survive this meeting with his brother. Pragmatic resources in cutting his losses, divine resources in prayer for deliverance, and physical resources in appeasing gifts. Jacob is absolutely desperate. He's absolutely terrified, and he's acting accordingly. So he has sent these waves of gifts ahead of him, Then in his final preparation, he sends his wives, his maids, and his children ahead of him, and he stays back alone. Look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 32. Now he arose that same night, and he took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, And he sent across whatever he had. So Jacob sends everything he owns, everyone he knows across that stream. And Jacob is left alone. He has not yet crossed over this stream to enter into the place where he will meet his brother Esau. He's alone. We don't know why he stays back alone, Perhaps he wants to pray. Perhaps he was just so nervous that he doesn't want anyone else to be around. Regardless, Jacob is alone. And this is where the story takes a strange and unexpected turn. Verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. (laughs) Brings us to a second scene in this story. The second scene in the story of Jacob's return to Esau is an unexpected wrestling match. An unexpected wrestling match. This is one of the more random, strange, and unexpected verses in your Bible. It it, it absolutely comes out of nowhere. Jacob is finally all alone, and a man just shows up and they wrestle until the sun comes up. This is strange. It's a strange, random, unexpected verse. They wrestle, they grapple. Wrestling is a, it's a funny thing. They're not, the term is not fighting here. They're not throwing punches or kicking. The word is grappling, like the, the Hebrew word here means to get on the ground and to get dirty. It's an incredibly physical, athletic feat of strength in which one person is seeking to physically dominate the other. It's hard to imagine a more tiring task Then two grown men wrestling each other for hours on end. But that's what's described in this scene. Jacob's finally all alone. A man comes and wrestles him until daybreak. If this seems strange, unexpected, random, even a little bit funny, it is. It is. This is a strange, unexpected scene. What on earth Is happening when this man shows up to wrestle Jacob. Who would do this? The text hasn't told us yet. All we're told is that it was a man. After they wrestle all night long, this man had not defeated Jacob. Look at verse 25. When he, the man, saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. So in yet another unexpected element, this man who has wrestled with Jacob all night reaches out, touches his thigh, and in doing so, he dislocates it. A dislocated thigh is it's the hip joint. It's very painful. Severely limiting one's ability to walk. This wrestling match has occurred all night long, but this is a revealing moment. Whoever Jacob is wrestling with can dislocate a hip with a touch, which is a significant statement. It is not easy to dislocate somebody's hip. The term Moses uses here is not that the man in any way like struck Jacob's hip. It's that he reached out and he touched it. He reached out and he touched it, and immediately he incapacitated him. It appears that Jacob, at this moment, begins to realize that he's not wrestling with a normal person. Pick up in verse 26. Jacob's hip has just been dislocated. Verse 26. Then he, Jacob, uh, he, the man rather, said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man Jacob is wrestling with wants to leave while it's still dark, but Jacob is apparently holding on to him. The man wants to leave and Jacob will not let him go. The man says, let me go. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. Not until you bless me, which let's just be honest, is not a common request offered in the midst of a wrestling match. Yes, I've had many wrestling matches with brothers and and my dad and in college and things like that. Never once has ever anyone held on tightly and said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. This is a strange request in a wrestling match. But apparently, Jacob views this person as someone that he needs to receive a blessing from keep reading verse 27 so the man said to him what is your the man said to him what is your name and he said jacob he said your name shall no longer be jacob but israel for you have striven with god and with men and have prevailed then jacob asked him and he said please tell me your name but he said why is it that you ask my name and he blessed him there. Again, a strange set of verses. In the midst of this wrestling match, the man asked Jacob what his name is and he changes his name to Israel. Now Israel can be translated as Moses describes in Genesis 32. Israel can be translated, he who strives with God. He who strives with God, which means this is a significant revelation in this text. This name change indicates that this man that Jacob has been wrestling with is God. God who took the form of a man to engage Jacob. Now, many of you know this story. Many of you are familiar with with this story, and so this doesn't come as a surprise to you. But imagine that you're reading this for the first time or that you are Jacob and you hear these words. This is like the ultimate blindside revelation. You have been wrestling with God. I'm changing your name to Israel because you've striven with God and with man and have prevailed. You've been wrestling with God. Which immediately just raises all sorts of questions. God specifically says you've striven against God and man and you've prevailed. We need to walk carefully here. God is acknowledging Jacob in these words. He's acknowledging him. He's speaking highly of him. He's acknowledging his strength. But let's be clear. God is not saying that Jacob is stronger than God. That's not what's being said here. Jacob is not, God is not saying that Jacob is stronger than God, but he is acknowledging Jacob's successes in both his strength and otherwise. He's acknowledging Jacob. Jacob returns by asking for God's name. What is your name? And God says, why do you ask my name? Why do you ask my name? Again, a strange response. God has just asked Jacob's name. Jacob asked God's name. But God responds in such a way that seems to indicate, you don't need to know my name. You know who you're talking to and it's clear that Jacob does. Look at verse 30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Jacob knows. Jacob knows I have just seen God, and my life has been preserved preserved, which shows that Jacob doesn't come out of this blessing feeling like he is stronger than God. He doesn't feel that way. Jacob comes out of this scene shocked that he's still alive. That's clear in verse 30. I have seen God face to face, and my life has been preserved. Jacob comes out of this uh, out of the scene shocked that he's still breathing. So God leaves. Having wrestled with Jacob all night and having now given him a blessing. Now you are not out of place if you are thinking, what on earth just happened? <laughs> what is going on in this scene? It's strange. In, in, in my experience with this book, it's one of the most difficult scenes in the book of Genesis. To wrap our minds around what is happening in this, in this scene, we're going to look at some before and after shots. I want to look at some before and after shots. Sometimes over the course of a long process, you can't always tell significant changes because they tend to happen in small increments. But when you can step back and see a picture of a before and after, and you can see all that has taken place you can get a better sense for what's taken place in this scene. So that's what I want to do. I want to take some before and after shots of what what Jacob was like before this scene versus what he was like after this scene. And I think in doing so, we'll be able to wrap our minds around what exactly is happening in these strange moments. Before and after. Before this scene, Jacob is requesting deliverance from Esau. Remember that? Look back at chapter 32, verse 11. Before the scene, Jacob is requesting deliverance from the hand of Esau. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother for the hand of Esau, for I fear him. After this scene, Jacob is no longer requesting deliverance from the hand of Esau. After this scene, Jacob is amazed that he has been delivered from God. He's shocked. He's floored that he has seen God face to face, and somehow his life has been preserved. Look at verse 30. Again, Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. It's, it's, it's the same word that, 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 that he used to describe the deliverance that he needs. My life is in his hands. I need to be delivered from Esau. That's what he's requesting before, after he's saying, I have been delivered from God. My life has been preserved. Let's look at another before and after shot. Before this scene, Jacob is doubting whether God will fulfill his blessing. After expressing his fear that Esau will kill him, in verse 12, Jacob expresses doubt in God's promise. He says, I'm worried I'm going to die. And you said that you would make my descendants like the sand of the seashore in verse 12. There's doubt in Jacob's prayer. He's saying, I'm scared of Esau. You promised me this, but I think I'm going to die. He's terrified. He's doubting whether God will fulfill his promises. After this scene, Jacob has yet again been blessed By God. In verse 29, we read that God blessed him yet again. In this blessing, after this long night, God is reminding Jacob that he will keep his promises. He has renewed confidence in God's blessing and in God's promises. Before this scene, Jacob is doubting God's promises. After the scene, Jacob has been blessed yet again and is renewed in his confidence that God will do what he said. Before this scene, Jacob is known as a deceiver. The word Jacob actually means deceiver, and Jacob's reputation certainly was one of deception. That's significant because A reputation of deception has consequences, which is precisely why Jacob is fearing for his life. The consequences of his deceptive actions are that Esau may kill him. So before this scene, Jacob is known as Jacob, deceiver. After this scene, Jacob is known as one who contended with God, Israel. This is a change in Jacob's name which means a change in Jacob's reputation. No longer, God says to him, will you be known negatively as one who deceives? No, now you will be known as one who finds success. There is a blessing from God in this new name. He says you've striven with God and with man and you have found success and you will be known for that. Again, don't get this wrong. Jacob does not come out of this scene feeling proud. He comes out, according to verse 30, shocked that his life has been spared. In other words, Jacob knows that his success can only be attributed to God's mercy. That's important. Jacob knows that well. I am only successful because of the mercy of God. Otherwise, I would be dead. But nonetheless, God has renamed him and given him a reputation of one who finds impossible success. Before this scene, Jacob had impressive physical ability. Moses makes this clear earlier in Genesis. Jacob was a strong man. In Genesis chapter 29, he lifts a stone that several other shepherds combined are unable to lift. He had impressive physical ability. After this scene, Jacob is now, as he is approaching a confrontation with Esau, hardly able to to walk. Verse 25 tells us that God purposefully and miraculously dislocates his hip. In this scene, God purposefully and miraculously injures the man with impressive physical ability. Before this scene, Jacob relied on his strength. Now, his physical abilities are severely limited. Before this scene, Jacob was filled with fear. After this scene, Jacob is confident in God. That's going to be evident as we transition into chapter 33. So before we do that, why why on earth does God take the form of a man and wrestle with Jacob all night, injure him, rename him, and bless him? Why this strange scene? The scene is not at all showing a weakness in God. This scene plays out exactly how God intends. Because by the morning, on the day when Jacob will face Esau, Jacob is left totally dependent on God. On the day when he's going to face Esau, he has no other option but to be totally dependent on God. He's injured. He's exhausted. God works in unique ways in this story. He simultaneously affirms Jacob's abilities and reminds him that he will only find success if God allows it. He says, you fought well, Jacob. You fought well with God and man, but remember, I can injure you with a touch. And remember, You need my blessing. And I'm willing to give it to you. After this long night, Jacob is hurt and humbled. But more than anything, his attitude is reoriented. While he originally felt that he was at the mercy of Esau, he now knows that he is actually at the mercy of God. And while wrestling with God should have meant certain death, his life has been spared. And so he enters this new day with a renewed confidence that God will keep his promises and that God will return him to the land from which he came. Let's see how that plays out in a third scene. Third scene, Jacob meets Esau. Transitioning into chapter 33, Jacob meets Esau. Pick up in verse one. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. This is precisely the scene that was so terrifying to Jacob the night before. The last thing he wanted to see was his brother coming towards him with 400 men. But Jacob's attitude is different now. Keep reading. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them, and he bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children, and he said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterwards, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. Jacob runs up to Esau, and it is a joyful reunion. They embrace, they weep, they show off their families. This scene is one of pure happiness. But then Esau asked a question. Look at verses eight and nine. He, Esau, said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And Jacob said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Esau, in those words, shows that he's actually confused by everything that Jacob has sent. Jacob says, I sent it to earn your favor. And Esau says, I don't need your stuff. I have plenty. Look at Jacob's response in verses 10 and 11. Jacob said, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus, he urged him and he took it. Jacob begs Esau to take the gift. He lifts a strange statement to Esau here. He says, please take these gifts because I see your face like one sees the face of God. Jacob is not saying you look like God to me. Remember what Jacob just went went through. He saw the face of God and he should have died. When he says, I see your face like one sees the face of God, what he's saying to Esau is, this encounter should mean death to me. Just like I was spared last night when I should have been killed, I am spared now when I should have been killed. I see your face as if I'm staring at the face of God. In other words, Jacob is acknowledging, you should kill me. You should kill me. I have no right to look upon your face. Jacob is confessing that he has wronged Esau and is in need of his mercy. Jacob says, I don't deserve the kindness that you've shown, but you've received me favorably, so please accept my gifts. In verses 12 through 17, then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord as seer. Esau said, please, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to see her. Jacob humbles himself before his brother and they go their separate ways. In this scene, we come to realize that God has spared Jacob's life from the wrath of his brother. God has spared Jacob's life from the wrath of his brother and he did so by softening Esau's heart to make him forgiving and receptive of Jacob. Because God performed this work there's one final scene that we need to see. Jacob returns to Canaan. It's the fourth scene in this story. Jacob returns to Canaan. Let's read verses 17 through 20. Jacob journeyed to Succoth. He built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padan Aram, he camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and called it El Elohi, Israel. These verses feel very logistical. They feel unimportant. But what we need to remember is that Jacob's return to Canaan brings to close a story that started 20 years before. Over 20 years before to the day, God had made a promise to Jacob. I'm with you. I will keep you. And I will bring you back to this land. God made Jacob a promise. And in this fourth scene after 21 years, he keeps it. He keeps his promises. There's two primary takeaways from this passage. First is to trust God to keep his promises. Trust God to keep his promises. What God says, he does. For us to trust the promises of God has significant ramifications on how we live. It is out of trust in the promise-keeping God that we don't need to live in fear. His ways are best. His ways are right. He is working all things together for good for those who love the Lord. If we are to trust God and to keep his promises, if we're going to rely on what he says, it demands a commitment to God's revealed word. If all of his words are true, And if we are going to trust the promises of God, if we're going to trust the promise-keeping God, we must know what his promises are. His word is filled with them. All his words are true. All his words are true. They can be trusted. So we need to live in trust upon statements, promises in God's word, promises like, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. Promises like if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Promises like he he who began a good work in you will complete it until the end. Promises like I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Promises like abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Whenever God speaks, it is totally true and reliable. In this text, Jacob initially failed to trust God's promise. That's why God comes to him and wrestles him into weakness and pain. That brings us to a second takeaway in this story. Recognize God's humbling work to bring us to reliance on him. This is why Jacob had to wrestle God. To accomplish this, this second takeaway, to make him desperately reliant upon God, to remind him that we need to fear him and him alone, to remind Jacob that his promises are the trustworthy ones. On the day that Jacob thinks that he will need to run for his life, God makes it so that he can't even walk. He humbles him. He brings him to the point where he has nowhere else to turn. Now, you may not literally wrestle with God in the way that's described in this text, but God does, just like he did with Jacob, place events and difficulties and trials in our life, and they can be inconvenient and and frustrating and and painful. But we need to recognize God's humbling work to, to bring us to reliance on him. Such trials are intended to draw us back to God, to cause us to fear him and not man, to trust him and not ourselves, to count on his mercy. Jacob learned that lesson. It took a long night, but Jacob learned that lesson. He goes to Esau fearing God because he learned the lesson that comes from wrestling with God. We need to know it's entirely possible to endure these type of times and not learn that lesson rather than to be humbled, to be hardened, rather than to trust God's promises, to doubt them even more. God wrestled with Jacob to grow him. Are you willing to recognize God's humbling work to bring you to reliance upon him? I'm gonna have Pastor Aaron come back up. We're gonna close this first service with a, with a song in which we commit to trusting every promise of God's word. Let's know that when our trust is weak, that God is lovingly faithful to grow us through unexpected trials, to draw us back to him. That's what he does to Jacob. That's what he does for us.